I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. It's always a pleasure, Ken. We were chatting just before about the fascination people have with cycles and market trends, and you said there were also a, a couple of emerging opportunities investors should be aware of. Therefore, I thought it might be helpful if we were to explore these aspects a little further today, if that's okay with you? Yeah, sure. I realise you may have touched on cycles and trends in an earlier episode, but I just felt they were perhaps needed fleshing out a bit more. When most people think about commercial property, they realise that it relates to offices, industrial and retail, but mistakenly they believe that it is one large market moving in a single cycle. In actual fact, there are three separate cycles going on, the largest of which, both physically and financially, is the office market. If you think about around the capital cities, it's pretty clear to, to see how that dominates the skyline. Now, the office market is unaffected by interest rates and it tends to historically move in an 18-year cycle from peak to peak. Now, for industrial property, that historically has moved in a nine-year cycle. In other words, it has two peaks over that same 18-year period, whereas retail tends to move in a six-year cycle. And that's probably because it is more sensitive to interest rate movements. Now, what I'll do is, Ken, if you like, I'll give you a simple graph that will diagrammatically show how these cycles move relative to one another. But what's important when we're talking about cycles and where we are in the cycle is to understand that the only time you have a boom time situation is when all three cycles are peaking at the same time, and that's at the end of each 18-year period. Now, the retail, as I said, might have three cycles, and yes, retail property might be hot at at certain points during that 18-year period, and industrial at a nine-year peak, but it's not until they all come together. And that's what you've seen. And If you go back to probably... For most people, the recent memory is they all peaked in the mid to late 1980s and the peak was in um, 1989, at which point the property market crashed because it was so overheated and some office properties fell 40-50% and it it was devastation. Now, what's happened since, which is interesting, is that the global financial crisis interrupted the overall cycle for property. And also, the Melbourne and Sydney markets are a lot more mature than the Brisbane and Perth markets, which still seem to be in this sort of boom-bust cycle. Both the Melbourne market and Sydney market, with Darling Harbour and, and Docklands, was able to relocate some large corporates close to the CBD 
but those that realised that they didn't have to have their admin and clerical staff right in the CBD and they made those moves with pre-commitments and therefore it wasn't a matter of coming to the end of leases and there being a shortage of space, therefore the speculative building and that's what used to happen in the 18-year cycle. Now, the way I see it at the moment is that the global financial crisis effectively brought us to the the nine-year period, and that's, in other words, from if we go 18 years peak to peak for office space, it has a, a bottom at the nine-year point. Now, industrial might be, might be going ahead, but offices, because it's a supply and demand thing, not driven by necessarily economic conditions. Effectively, the, the global financial crisis left us at the bottom of that nine-year cycle, and so that happened in 2008 and went through till about 2010. So if we say it's got nine years to run, that means that the office cycle is going to peak, certainly for Sydney and Melbourne, probably 2019, 2020. Now, I suspect because with the global financial crisis hitting, the Perth and Brisbane markets suffered far more than Melbourne and Sydney. Melbourne came through the best, Sydney next. Perth was devastated, as was Brisbane. Perth is starting to recover. But I suspect because they are relatively immature markets, there will still be a boom-bust activity. And that may well continue on a little further past the 2020, maybe 2022. But even though the Melbourne and Sydney markets might peak, again, because of their maturity, they won't come off as much. So they might peak earlier and come down slightly, and I'm talking 10, maybe 15%, whereas the Perth and uh, Brisbane markets, from my reading of the past and trying to interpret it going forward, will probably peak a little later, but when they do peak, they will then decline more sharply, maybe 20, possibly 30% when the decline occurs. So... Hopefully that gives you a bit of an insight into cycles and where we are in the cycle. Now, what trends are currently affecting commercial property? As to trends, I think in an earlier podcast we talked about the growing impact of baby boomers both on the commercial and residential markets. And the two are unrelated but connected. In other words, the baby boomers will be downsizing their residential properties, flooding the market, and that's already, you'll start to see, occurring now that the catch-up has taken place after the global financial crisis. But more of these traditional family homes in the inner middle-income suburbs of, of the capital cities will start to come on the market as baby boomers downsize. Now, that will cause them some angst because they won't be receiving the prices that they had expected because there are you know five times as many properties on the market, same number of buyers. But they will just have to be very realistic but also take a cut in, in what they achieve. Now that will, as we said, flow on to if they've used those family homes as collateral for a commercial property will have an impact on the commercial property market. Plus, we also talked about 
how baby boomers having retired probably earlier than their parents and set up their own consultancies are now starting to look at joining with their children, going to their children's business to give them a hand both from credibility, networking and so forth. And that's what's been driving the suburban office market as far as strata title development that you would have seen occurring in the suburbs, both close and pockets, which have developed into office precincts around where those people tend to live. So people, it's a lifestyle choice. Instead of commuting all the way to the city, they're now saying, well, we don't need to be in the city with the technology and so forth. We can have our office closer to home and therefore enjoy a lifestyle with our kids and family generally. So again, there are a couple of trends which are driving markets at the moment. And you also mentioned a couple of emerging trends our, our listeners could benefit from as well. Yes, there has been a, a lot of publicity recently about the surge in online retailing. And that's meant there's been a demand for bricks and mortar shop space. And in turn, that's affected rentals and the growth that you can expect from retail. And also, it's meant an increase in the demand for warehouse space. Now, if you think about it, warehouse space activity has been occurring more and more over the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, you think back, when when was the last large manufacturing factory constructed? It was probably 15, 20 years ago, just all around Australia, if you think about it. Most of it has been logistics, storage, warehousing. Now, that's being driven even more by the online retailing and the growth. And that's probably the reason why when people ask me which sector do I favour at the moment, offices would be first, industrial second, and retail a very distant third. But with internet sales for retailing due to reach $20 billion during 2014, if you own a distribution facility, it should prove to be a very good investment over the next five years because with the new people entering the market on the retail sales, they're bypassing the need for bricks-and-mortar retail outlets completely. They're simply having their online store and using warehouses, both large and small, for their fulfilment centres. So that really is something that's taken off and we're going to see a lot more of over the next uh, five or six years. That is probably the culmination of something our listeners would have been aware of for a while now. Is there anything new on the horizon? I mean, providing a benefit for investors? Well, actually there is. And I put up a post on my blog recently about what is occurring with knowledge workers. In other words, people that are working in offices and they're being employed by mid to large businesses being service organisations, firms like banks, accountants, lawyers, property. And many of the employees there, if you think about it, are familiar with the trend of hot desking. Now, hot desking has been occurring since the 
early 1990s with these business services firms. And it's been driven by the expected and inevitable cost savings that result from reducing the amount of office space that they need overall as a company when they introduce this sharing of desks. Now, if this trend were to continue, it would clearly have potential to adversely affect the overall of demand for office space going forward. Now, what was interesting is that recently in the age, I think it was towards the end of December last year, Ross Gittins challenged the underlying wisdom of what he sees as a penny-pinching fad. You see, the rationale behind this was that by replacing individual offices with workstations and sometimes even removing the dividers between those workstations, this would significantly reduce the space requirement per employee. And at the same time, the aim was that it would improve staff collaboration. Now, what's happening is that some of these firms, and I know I have a daughter working with NAB, and they simply issue their staff with a mobile phone, laptop and a locker and are effectively adopting a virtual office or clean desk policy where you as an employee have no fixed location within the office from one day to the next, even during the day in some cases. So what that means is that you have staff with no fixed abode and there's some research that's been done recently by Diane Hopkins who is with a large US design firm called Gensler and she researched about 90,000 people from 155 companies across 10 different industries. Now, as a result of her research, her team found that knowledge work comprises four separate functions. The first is focus, which involves individual work requiring concentration and attention to a particular task. The second is collaboration, where you work with others to achieve a goal. The third is learning, which involves acquiring knowledge or a skill through education or experience. And fourthly, socialising, which are the reactions or interactions that create trust, bonds, values, collective identity and build productive relationships. But the interesting thing is what they discovered was that collaboration was not the most significant factor in workplace effectiveness. Instead, it was individual work focus. Furthermore, they found that these new style office layouts actually make focus virtually impossible. So instead of workers experiencing this better work practices, they had constant operations, both sound and visual distractions, which all combined to make focus in the modern office the most compromised work mode. So what you're finding is that this is actually great news for property investors, commercial property investors, because while the current office design seeks to improve 
collaboration, what it actually does is sacrifice individual focus. And as a result, you end up reducing worker efficiency rather than improving it, and that results in a far lower productivity overall. Now also, that research found, which is I find interesting, is that those who can focus effectively are 57% more able to collaborate, 88% more able to learn, and 42% more able to socialise in the workplace than their colleagues or peers who are unable to focus. So as you can appreciate, as the penny drops, more and more firms will begin reverting back to the more conventional, i.e. larger, office layouts where they give individual, some individual privacy, not necessarily separate offices, but certainly more able to focus in a home. I mean, people perform better when they have a home. That's why people, have, when you go to an office, they might have a picture of a family member or some object that they've... It, you just When you arrive in the office, you just feel that you are ready to go. It's, it's where you belong. And this is what's been sacrificed for the sake of supposedly cost savings and what they anticipated, therefore, more efficiency. So as a result, what you're going to see is the demand for office space accelerate over the next three to four years with a resultant increase in both rentals and capital value. Now, admittedly, this is this trend has been in the larger firms, but as a result of larger firms taking less space, it has meant that the spare space left over has had to be subdivided and offered to smaller firms. But as they reclaim that space, they're going to dislodge some of the smaller firms, which are then going to be become potential occupiers and add to demand for traditional buildings designed for smaller occupants, both in the city and in the suburbs. So there's going to be a, a domino effect as they, those larger firms start to reoccupy more space that they have relinquished over the last 10 or 15 years. So it's going to be an interesting situation and I see it combining with, we talked about the cycles before, adding to the growth that's going to occur running up to 2019-2020. Interesting stuff. I like it. Plus, I'm sure our listeners will appreciate the insights you've given in, in today's emerging opportunities. And so... Thank you, Chris. Until next week. I'll uh, look forward to seeing you then.